Is it that time already? Where does this time fly? You've actually found yourself listening to the Nasty Pasty podcast, you poor devils. Unfortunately, there's no sweetly baked treats or stolen sweet roll here. Instead, you have a torrid affair of multiple horror flicks from the era that time forgot, when Mr. Plod could literally steal films off the shelf and deprive you of your debauched evening's entertainment. It's me again, Mr. Andre Roberts, who's running a fine-tooth comb through this era of home entertainment to find the obscurities and forgotten gems the Big Brother couldn't be bothered finding and prosecuting properly. The films that were actually held accountable for the vicious crime of simply existing can be found on the Video Nasties podcast, and also The Strange and Deadly Show, which has just had a shocking return from the depths of degeneracy to befoul us all over again. But no, seriously, check these out, they're very much worth a listen. But let's get back to it, yes? In this stylish and very sultry episode, we'll discover that mass murder is perfectly acceptable when trying to hide high-class scandal, trips to Rome can be ruined by men in yellow jackets, and you should never trust an artist who lives alone in filth eating cat meat. Today's episode of Nasty Pasty is covering some of the best examples of a classic genre, the giallo. Now, for those that are unfamiliar with what a giallo is, I'll see if I can come up with a Reader's Digest way of explaining this particular subgenre. Now, giallo is the Italian word for yellow, and the genre got its name from paperback murder mystery novels which were fruitfully published in Italy post-Mussolini, with particularly distinctive yellow covers, uniformly so because they were very cheap to produce. Now, while murder mysteries have been adapted to film before the giallo, the only distinctive subgenre in this kind of style before was the German creamy film, which was adaptations of the works of Edgar Wallace, with an importance on the unravelling of a masked murderer by someone in law enforcement. Other non-creamy films, such as the work of Arne Matson, also featured murder mysteries in a stylish, colourful setting, but it wasn't until Mario Bava's The Girl Who Knew Too Much that the giallo was born. Featuring a young American woman in Rome who witnesses a crime, the plot involves her unravelling the identity of the killer herself, with elements of Hitchcock and giallo paperback novels. This structure was then memorialised forever, when Bava's subsequent giallo, Blood and Blacklace, was released, which featured many of the tropes that would become synonymous with the genre. Dario Argento's Bird with the Crystal Plumage would catapult the genre into the public eye, and countless giallo films then spilled forth to capitalise on the ensuing popularity, rather like the slasher boom of the 80s. Now, while in a conventional giallo narrative, a protagonist will witness or otherwise become embroiled in a murder and decide to help solve the identity of the killer, but a giallo is not particularly bound by this narrative and the structure can be fluid. Commonly, however, the narrative of giallo films contains bizarre characters with strange arcs and motivations, as well as just generally nonsensical plotlines. But what truly makes a giallo, however, is the style and tone, which frequently includes references to numbers, colours and animals in the titles, with sweeping, gliding camera shots, jazzy lounge soundtracks, particular use of colour and images, graphic violence, usually directed at women, along with some themes of repression, alienation, sexuality, identity and madness. Common recurring images are killers with black leather gloves, close-ups of eyes, misinterpretations of what you're seeing, as well as voyeuristic point-of-view shots. Now that you know roughly what a giallo is, you'll be pleased to know that I've chosen two of the most monumental giallo films for you today, Blood and Black Lace, or Sedone per l'Assassino, 
responsible for setting the template of the genre, and The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, or Lucello dalle Piume di Cristallo, responsible for making the genre popular and profitable. Now, in the slasher world, these two would be the equivalent of Halloween and Friday the 13th, which performed the same function in that respective genre. So let's start with Barber's example first, the very influential Blood and Blacklace. At an opulent fashion house, model Isabella is suddenly strangled by a masked assailant and has her head beaten against a tree, killing her. After being found dumped in a closet by Countess Christina, the manager of the house, along with her lover Max Marion, the police assign Inspector Sylvester to the case, who discovers drugs on the corpse of Isabella and suspects that her killing may be in some way related. That evening, while performing in the next show, model Nicole happens upon a box that contains Isabella's diary, which seems to contain scandalous content, noticeably making everyone around uncomfortable. She then receives a call from her lover Frank, who sounds ill, so she dashes away from the show and heads to his shop, only to encounter the masked killer who pursues her and kills her with a spiked gauntlet to the face. Searching through her purse, he doesn't find the diary and then flees the scene. It's revealed that another model called Peggy has stolen it, who goes through it and removes pages that are detrimental to her, as she'd actually loaned money from Isabella. Ultimately deciding to burn the entire thing, Peggy suddenly hears the door, and when she answers is assaulted by the killer who demands to know where the diary is. Trying in vain to explain, Peggy is brutally beaten unconscious and taken away just as the inspector arrives. In a basement somewhere, the killer interrogates Peggy by burning her hand on a wall heater, but he's unable to stop her from reaching up and removing the mask. 
Recognising her attacker, Peggy is then killed when her face is pressed to the heater. Convinced that one of the related men is the murderer, Inspector Sylvester incarcerates all the men to interview them. But while they're all in custody, model Greta discovers Peggy's corpse in the trunk of her car and moves it inside, afraid that it shows that she's the guilty one. The killer, however, confronts her and smothers her with a pillow, causing the inspector to let the men go. Max, however, is shown to have the killer's notebook, and when he descends into the basement where Peggy was tortured, Christina appears and explains that she had to get rid of the body and kill Greta to give Max an alibi. Max and Christina muse about the events, come about from Isabella blackmailing Max about his involvement in Christina's previous husband's death. When Max killed her to keep her quiet, he soon became aware of the diary, which surely had the details of what he'd done, so he killed Nicole and Peggy to retrieve the diary. Max deduces that they'll need to kill one more person in order to secure the truth and deflect suspicion from Max. So later that night, Tao Lee, another model, is drowned in her bathtub by the assailant, who is now revealed to be Christina, and she slashes the wrists of the girl to make it look like suicide. A sudden knocking at the door panics Christina and she flees to a balcony and attempts to climb down the drainpipe, which breaks off, sending her plunging to the ground. It's revealed that the knocking was in fact Max, who's broken the pipe purposefully to eliminate his lover. Back at the fashion house, Max rifles through drawers for jewellery and documents, only to be disturbed by a noise and is shocked to see a battered Christina. She spouts that he doesn't love her and wanted to murder her as well so that he could inherit all of her possessions. While initially she embraces him after he tries to calm her down, two gunshots ring out and Max falls down dead. While on the phone with the police, Christina succumbs to her injuries and dies next to her lover. They are holding all five of them. But why? The police obviously think one of them is the murderer. I thought so. Madam, please, can we go? Oh. Oh, yes, yes, go. Goodbye. Good night. Good night, madame. How I envy them. They live together. At least they keep each other company. I must go, madam. All right. Wait. Listen, why don't you come home and sleep with me? What? I live a few yards from here. And you want me to come out into the countryside? Then I could come and stay at your place. No, I'm sorry, but I'd rather be alone. Anyway, you'd be even more afraid at my house. Well, aren't you afraid? Isabella and Peggy lived with you. Isabella's been killed, and Peggy... Yes, I know. But I don't think anything would happen tonight. All the men are under arrest. And I'm sure the murderer is one of them. Goodbye, madame. Good night. Madame, I'm not going home. I'll sleep here. No, you won't, dear. You're going home just like the others. I'm all alone. I live out in the country, not here in town. Now, Greta, listen to me. Tomorrow we have a very hard day ahead of us. The show must go on, you know. Now, look. Isabella and Nicole were mixed up in some ugly business that has nothing to do with the rest of us. So we have nothing to be afraid of, do you understand? Go now. Don't worry. Thank you. Good night, madam. Good night. 
Mario Bava had already found massive success with his first two horror pictures, Black Sunday and Black Sabbath, which led to him having complete control over his next project, which was tentatively titled La Atelier della Morte, which means The Fashion House of Death. And this was meant to be a murder mystery in the style of a creamy film. Bava, however, had other plans, since he was frustrated and disenfranchised with the traditional structure of whodunit mysteries, which often focused on character dialogue and police procedure. So he stipulated that the murders themselves should be the focus of attention, with emphasis on graphic and cruel violence perpetrated against the victims, who themselves would display vulgar characteristics such as overt sexuality and debauched behaviour. Influential mainly on the future slasher film, and body count films in general for this trend-setting template, the film also introduced the template of a giallo film, with gliding camera shots, creative cinematography, and a brutal edge to the killings. Even by today's standards, the film's cinematography is absolutely beautiful, with shockingly intense colours, opulent and ornate set designs, flamboyant costumes and hairstyles, and stunning contrast of light and shadows. The film was completed in roughly six weeks with photography starting in November of 1963 on a budget of just $150,000. The majority of the movie was shot in Rome, Italy with specific houses as the main locations such as Villa Ciara for the main fashion house, Via del Valabro for the antique shop where Nicole is killed, Via de Parioni for Peggy's house and Via Appia Antica for Greta's house. And to make the film more marketable overseas, the script was written in English, despite some of the actors being Italian-speaking only. Actress Mary Harden, who played Peggy, helped with some of the English dialogue, and the film was shot with English speech, even if just phonetically. Due to the low budget, however, Barber had to make some, some concessions for the more technical shots. He utilised his trusty child's wagon for some of the sweeping shots, which he would later reuse in his video nasty film, Bloodbath, while Cameron Mitchell, who played Max, remembers Barva also making a seesaw-like implement out of planks in order to do some of the crane shots. Mary Arden had an accident on set while filming the scene where Greta discovers her body. Now, the car's trunk door reportedly slammed down too early and collided with Arden's nose, hurting her badly and ultimately leaving her with a scar. It took a few hours for the pain to go away and Barva had to comfort her in order to continue filming. Arden's makeup for showing the burn also took about four hours to apply, and she was so tired that when she went home one evening that she kept the makeup on, which scared her mother, who was living with her at the time. The original cut of the film also had this burning of Peggy's face happen in a much more explicit fashion, but Barva ultimately decided to cut it down from the final film version. Now, Cameron Mitchell, who plays the villainous Max, was an American actor who'd served in World War II as an Air Force bombardier, before moving into theatre and subsequently the film world. Appearing in numerous motion pictures such as Death of a Salesman, the 1952 version of Les Miserables, and How to Marry a Millionaire, Mitchell made this appearance in Blood and Blacklace. Now, after this taste of Italian filmmaking, Mitchell made appearances in quite a few exploitation pictures, such as The Video Nasty, The Toolbox Murders, The Monster Bee Movie, The Swarm, Sergio Martino's Isle of the Mutations, the slasher film Silent Scream, the sci-fi Predator predecessor Without Warning, and the controversial Cataclysm in 1980. He had an illustrious career both in film and TV, but he sadly passed away in 1994 in California. 
Mitchell was not the only American actor on set, however. Mary Arden, who played the much-suffering Peggy, was also from the US, and she'd made a few minor appearances in thrillers from the 60s and 70s, with her final appearance being in 2012's little-known Bloody Christmas, just two years before her death in 2014. The small role of Clarice was played by Harriet Medin, who'd previously appeared in Barber's Black Sabbath, as well as 1960's La, jo- La Dolce Vita. Medin became more of an act character actor over the years, and she's made small appearances in a lot of cult movies, such as Death Race 2000, The Witches of Eastwick, and even James Cameron's The Terminator. Leah Lander, who played Greta, appeared in Barva's last film, Rabid Dogs, which wasn't released until way after Barva's death, as well as the Nazi exploitation film, Achtung, The Desert Tigers, which was directed by Luigi Batsella, famous for making the video nasty, The Beast in Heat. Gofredo Unger also did some uncredited work as a stunt double for the killer, and he went on to do more stunt work on Luigi Cozzi's Star Crash, as well as the video nasty Cannibal Apocalypse. He also appeared as an actor in Cannibal Apocalypse, as a biker, as a driver in Lamberto Barber's Demons, but he's probably more well-known as the guy in Joe D'Amato's video nasty film Absurd, as the guy who gets his head cut into with a bandsaw. He also worked, however, as an assistant director on Star Crash, 1982's Panic, and also The Exterminators of the Year 3000. The editor, Mario Sarandre, had worked on most of Barva's first films, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, Black Sunday, and Black Sabbath, as well as another giallo film, The Long Hair of Death. Apart from Mario Barva's own flair for cinematography, Barva's cinematographer of choice was Obaldo Tazzano, who worked on this film and also worked on many other giallo pictures, such as Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Argento's Section 3 video nasty film Deep Red, as well as Fulci's extremely graphic The New York Ripper. He also worked on Paul Morrissey's video nasty Flesh for Frankenstein, and its companion piece Blood for Dracula. Now, released in 1964, Blood and Black Lace played in UK cinemas in a heavily cut version, which omitted most of the violent tussling in Isabella's murder, Towley's drowning, Nicole's death via the spiked gauntlet, and the shots of Peggy being burned alive on the hand and face. The film was released virtually uncut by either film services on VHS in 1979, but it was actually the US print which omitted a shot of blood pooling in the bathtub during Towley's death, and it also featured a different opening credit sequence. Either Film Services had released a whole slew of video nasties, so it's not hard to picture Barber's film being picked up by the police, especially as Barber's other film, Bay of Blood, was seized as a full-on nasty under its bloodbath title. Now, this same print was used on the 2000 VHS re-release until the 2015 remastered Blu-ray from Arrow Video, which restored the bathtub scene, as well as having both versions of the opening credits, was included and released. And that was Blood and Black Lace. Now, we'll go swiftly on to our next film, which is Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage.
American writer Sam Dalmas is about to leave Italy to return home when he notices a pair of figures struggling in an art gallery. Attempting to help, he becomes stuck between two electronic glass doors and can only watch as the attacker, donned in black gloves and hat, escapes, leaving the woman, Monica, severely injured. The police arrive and escort Monica, who's the wife of the gallery's owner, Alberto, to hospital and she eventually survives her attack, which prompts the main police officer in charge, Inspector Morosini, to confiscate Sam's passport, as he's a vital witness to the latest of what would be a victim of a killer who's thus far murdered three women. Because he feels he's missed something that he's seen, and in a bid to speed up his return to the US, Sam starts to investigate the murder himself. He interviews the pimp of one of the victims, as well as visits the shop where one of the other victims worked. Here he discovers that the first victim sold a painting before she was murdered, which depicts a woman being horribly stabbed by a masked murderer with black gloves and hat. After another girl is found dead, Morosini assigns an officer to Dalmas to protect him during the investigation. But during an evening out with his girlfriend Julia, the officer is killed by the killer's car, with a hitman leaving the vehicle and pursuing Sam only to be lost in a crowd. Going back to the pimp, he then deduces the identity of the hitman and goes to his apartment, only to find his dead body stuffed in a cupboard. Meanwhile, Julia is stalked by the killer when Sam is absent, and the pair begin to receive threatening phone calls from the killer, one of which contains a strange screeching sound. Sam, Sam's agent Garulo thinks it is familiar and takes the recording to study it, while Sam visits the artist who painted the picture after yet another victim is found. The artist explains that he based the picture on an incident that happened in his village, where a young girl was attacked viciously by a madman, but she survived. Back home, Garulo has deciphered the strange sound. It's the call of a rare bird known as the bird with the crystal plumage, due to the glint of its feathers. There is thankfully only one specimen in a Rome zoo, and arriving at the location makes Sam and the police realise that it's near the apartment of Alberto and Monica. Going inside, Alberto and Monica are struggling and the police intervene, which causes Alberto to fall from the building's window onto the ground. Dying, he admits to the police that he was the murderer. Sam, however, notices that Julia and Garulo are missing and follows their trail to an empty building, where he finds Garulo dead and Julia tied up. From the shadows emerges Monica, and Sam suddenly realises that the thing he missed at the gallery was actually that he misinterpreted what he saw. Monica was actually attacking her husband, Alberto, who's the man in the raincoat and hat, and it caused her to cut herself. Monica flees, and Sam pursues her only to be pinned underneath a sculpture in the gallery. Monica plays with him and prepares to stab him until the police arrive, suddenly saving Sam. It then becomes apparent that Monica was the girl who was attacked in the artist's village and became severely traumatised until she saw the painting again as an adult, whereupon she snapped and began to identify with her attacker and began perpetrating the murders on other women that she felt were vulnerable. In the ending, Sam and Julia leave Italy finally and return to the US by plane. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Can I help you? Uh, yes, I'd like to see something... Oh, yes, uh... you're interested in porcelain. Oh, You I... have marvellous taste. <laughs> These pieces are beautiful. Uh, simply divine. Uh, how much is this one? Three hundred. Oh. oh, but I won't be unreasonable about it. <laughs> Not with you. Um... My goodness. 
Isn't this the shop where that girl worked? Pardon? Mm, the girl who was murdered. Ah, oh, the poor, poor girl. What a terrible way to end. What was she like? Oh, lovely girl, <laughs> but uh, uh, a little unusual, you know. Oh? Well, yes. It was said that uh, she preferred women. Oh. oh. I couldn't care less. Of course not. <laughs> I'm no racist, for heaven's sake. <laughs> I remember that night as if it were yesterday. We hadn't made a sale all day. Then, just before we closed, we, we sold a painting that was in the window. And, uh, did you make the sale? No, uh, the poor girl did. I was checking the books. And then um, she went out without even saying goodnight. <laughs> Soon after, they found her. Uh, um, what was uh, the painting? Oh, it was strange. It was uh, naive, but macabre at the same time. Would you like to see it? You still have it? Oh, I, I've only a copy with a photo. Oh, I would like to see it, yes. Mm -hmm. I'll show you. Hmm? <laughs> Let me see. Oh, here it is. <laughs> Can I borrow this? Ah, no, no, no. <laughs> no, we don't normally allow it. Please. While Dario Argento had worked on Once Upon a Time in the West as a writer, Argento's first film was this giallo, 1970s The Birds with the Crystal Plumage. The script was written by Argento in five days after director Bernardo Bertolucci gave him a copy of the 1949 Frederick Bound novel The Screaming Mimi, which was already made into a film in 1958 by Gerd Oswald. While this was the first giallo made by Argento, he wrote what would become one of his characteristic trademarks of a protagonist who has issue interpreting something that they saw, either through blindness of some kind or just not remembering a visual clue properly. Originally, British director Terence Young, who directed three Bond films, Doctor No, From Russia With Love and Thunderball, was eyed up to get the director's seat, but it was eventually offered to Argento himself. Executive producers reportedly did not like the way that Argento was handling the filming, and they wanted him removed from the production. They were on the verge of doing this until Dario's father, Salvatore Argento, came across the executive secretary looking visibly upset. When he asked her what was wrong, she explained that she'd looked in on some of the screening dailies, and the scene terrified her and made her extremely uncomfortable. So Salvatore implored her to tell her superior about it, and it was her testimony that kept Dario Argento attached to the picture. American-Italian actor Tony Massanti was chosen to play the main film role, who frequently irritated Argento due to his insistence on visiting him at 3am for tips on Sam Dalmas's characterisation. The stunning shot of Alberto Ranieri falling to his death was achieved by dropping the film camera off the building. The camera was destroyed in the process, but thankfully the footage was recovered and used in the final film. So Tony Massanti played main man Sam Dalmas, and he went on to have a prolific TV career, and British actress Susie Kendall played girlfriend Julia, who'd previously appeared in To Sir With Love, and would go on to appear in several other giallo films, like Sergio Martino's Torso and Umberto Lenzi's Spasmo. 
Now, Enrico Maria Salerno played Inspector Morosini, who would later go on to star in the video nasty Late Night Trains by Aldo Lardo, which is also known as Night Train Murders. Ava Renzi, who played the disturbed Monica, reportedly said that the role in Argento's film killed her career. But Umberto Rajo, who played Alberto, did not find it such a burden and later went on to appear in the next film in this trilogy, The Cat of Nine Tales, as well as another Giallo film, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, and also Reno Di Silvestro's Love in a Woman's Prison. Renato Romano, who played Garulo, appeared later in other Gialli, such as The Fifth Chord, uh, The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, and Seven Bloodstained Orchids. Cinematographer Vittorio Storaro worked on the controversial Last Tango in Paris, and as well as Apocalypse Now and also Dick Tracy. Editor Franco Fraticelli had a much more expansive breadth of Italian exploitation under his belt, working on oodles of films like Cat and Nine Tales, My Dear Killer, Phenomena, Demons 1 and 2, Opera, and also Michel Soavi's The Church and Cemetery Man. And he also notably worked on four video nasties, all of them under Dario Argento's umbrella. These were Deep Red, Suspiria, Tenebrae, and Inferno. The dreamy soundtrack was helmed by veteran composer Ennio Morricone, famous for his later work with Quentin Tarantino. Now, his recognisable tones were in Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Western trilogy, which consisted of A Fistful of Dollars, For a Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. His later work included Once Upon a Time in the West, where he met Dero Argento, as well as Cat and Nine Tales, Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Black Belly of the Tarantula, The Fifth Chord, Short Night of the Glass Dolls, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, My Dear Killer, What Have You Done to Solange, Who Saw Her Die, Spasmo, Almost Human, Once Upon a Time in America, and Sarlo, 120 Days of Sodom. As you can get from the list, Morricone's work is so expansive that I couldn't possibly include everything. He did, however, compose the music for two video nasty films, Late Night Trains and John Carpenter's The Thing. As can be inferred from the previous mention, this was but one of three films in Argento's so-named Animals trilogy, which included 1971's Cat and Nine Tales and Four Flies on Grey Velvet, which came out later that same year. The film was released in 1970 to rave reviews, leading to Argento being labelled as the Italian Hitchcock. Now, it was very critically and commercially successful in both its native Italy, where it played reportedly for three and a half years continuously, but it was also successful worldwide, and is often attributed to the massive explosion in the popularity of the giallo genre, which caused a spate of imitators in the following years. The film did have a release in the UK in 1970 under the title The Gallery Murders, where it was released uncut. But unfortunately, the VHS version released by Vampix in 1983 was cut by 18 seconds by the BBFC, who removed shots during the panty murder sequence due to the sexualised violent aspect of the knife being run over her nightdress, the panties removal, and the implication of the sexual violence using the knife. Vampix were already under the DPP's radar for releasing The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, and Death Weekend. The fact that Vampix used the BBFC censored version would probably not have helped due to the fact that the three nasties mentioned before were also the cut versions as approved by the BBFC. 
It's for this reason that I'm fairly confident that this film was probably seized, especially since the cover of the film had an explicit shot of a bloody knife emerging from Tony Massanti's face. The BBFC cut version persisted in Britain until 2011, when Arrow Video restored the film on a modern Blu-ray and DVD, with all previous cuts waived. And that was The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and it's the end of the show for this week, guys. Thanks very much for giving me your time to listen to my ramblings, and I do hope you've enjoyed hearing about these two classic Jello films. Now, next week, however, we have another different genre, which I can imagine it won't be to everyone's taste, but it is a genre that's embedded in the Video Nasty saga. Next week, we're covering two rape and revenge horror movies from the 70s. These are 1979's Terror Express and 1978's Last House on the Beach. With some of the genre's most controversial entries on the Video Nasties list, such as I Spit on Your Grave, Late Night Trains and Last House on the Left, there are other examples around the same era which should probably be explored due to the probability of them also being seized. But until next week, however, thank you all very much for listening, and we shall see you soon on the Nasty Pasty Podcast. Adios! (laughs) 